and they had come down for a visit. I was thinking about this the other day, and Oren and Emma had a motorcycle crash, and uh, they, I mean, it was, it was pretty scary because they, they ran it off the, they ran off the bank down here, one of the steeper spots in the creek, and wrecked it into the creek, kind of disappeared over the edge, and thought, oh my goodness, we were all running over there and fearing the worst. And Emma was, had gotten her head split, and, you know, she's blonde-headed, and head wounds bleed bad anyway, and then um, you add blonde hair, which would just be glorious. I can only imagine uh, what that would be like. Really, any hair, you know, just if you just added hair, I, th- I think. Um, but uh, I remember, you know, the, the, the blood was everywhere, and I remember saying to Kara, because you know, moms, you know, you're right there on the verge. I got to hold it together, but I'm about to freak out. This is my baby, you know. And I remember saying, she's bleeding and she's crying. We can deal with that. Like, that's good. If, if there's no sign of life, there's no sign of pain, now we got a problem. And um, some of us were watching the, the football game last Monday night when that uh, – that safety for the Bills collapsed on the field. He's not moving, and they're doing compressions. And you go, okay, this is a different situation. And last night I was listening to a group of Snowbird uh, College staff members uh, share their experiences working in student ministry. And one of the questions that was asked was, what's the hardest thing about working in student ministry? And uh, one, of, one of the guys answered, well, it's when you are pouring your heart out sharing a gospel that has literally changed your life, has taken you from life to death, something that you would die for, something that you understand as much as is humanly possible, the gravity and the weight of what Jesus has done for you. And you're looking at a 16-year-old that doesn't care. They don't care. And there's, there's a side of that. They haven't lived life yet, right? You know, or a 12-year-old or whatever. He was saying a teenager, you know, in, in the context of student ministry. You feel the gravity of this, like, I understand the weight of the gospel, and this person is indifferent to it. And one of the things that I think we experience the longer we walk with Jesus is the weight of another person's indifference, the weight of another person's rejection, the weight of another person turning away. And it can be overwhelming at times. And I think we've probably all had friends or family or somebody we care about that's turned away from the Lord or has rejected the gospel. And it's especially painful, I think, and maybe this is person to person. For me, it feels especially painful when someone has seemed to have walked with Jesus and then they turn away or they begin to reject the gospel that you thought they had embraced. It's heavy. It's so heavy. And I remember getting in a a car, getting in my truck and driving nine hours to wait on a young man to get out of class and I'm standing there when he walks out the door of class. And he's taken aback like, what are you doing here? And I said, I just drove nine hours to do what James instructs the church to do, which is to plead with you to turn from your sin and come back to Jesus. And that young man did. It was a crazy story where I saw the hand of God move and a person respond to like biblical, healthy confrontation that was coming from a place of love. But then as oftentimes we've seen people turn away and not return, not come back and then reject the counsel and not heed the, the pleading. Many of us have pled with people that we care about, that we love, that have sat in these seats and 
that we've worshiped alongside of. The Christian life, one of the things that's difficult about being a Christian and studying and understanding theology and doctrine and the Bible is that there, there are certain aspects of the nature of God that are shrouded in mystery. That God has revealed so much of himself to us, but there's some things that your finite mind cannot understand. I mean, ladies, do you understand your husband? How are you going to understand an infinitely wise and all-knowing being? You know, like, like men, can you figure out your wife? You know, can you, parents, can you figure out your kids, siblings that can't get on the same page? Like, we can't figure out another human being. And yet, sometimes I think we, and maybe it's not fair, but we expect to know more about God than we can even possibly process. Or we demand to know things that, that are not for us to know, at least not in this life. And so as you study through the Christian life, you'll find as you live through the Christian life, there's tension in every aspect of Christianity. And tension's a good thing. You know how when you're cutting a piece of cloth, if it's loose, it's harder to cut than if you pull it taut. And then you can cut with a good pocket knife or a pair of scissors, you can cut that cloth. And so you get someone to help you and they pull it and, and they're moving along. Y'all, y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about. And that tension is a good thing. And so tension is something that's good in the Christian life that, that, that holds us oftentimes from running to one extreme or the other. And I think one of the places where there's a lot of tension is concerning the security of the believer. And this is something we're gonna see addressed a lot in our study of Hebrews, because throughout the book of Hebrews, there are multiple warnings that feel like at times, and we're gonna read through, we're gonna work through one of them tonight, it feels like God's saying, be warned, if you do this, you forfeit your salvation. But there's mystery and there's tension where the reality is, if Christ is the author of a person's salvation, we, we believe as a church, and we believe that biblically this is to be true, that, that, that he's going to complete the work that he starts in that person. But at the same time, a lot of us have grown up holding to that belief and cheapening it where it's like, well, I got saved, so I can do whatever I want to. I'm going to heaven one day. And that doesn't seem to be supported by Scripture that where Jesus himself would say, well, someone's fruit is going to give evidence of whether or not their faith is real. And there are going to be people that come to me on Judgment Day and say, we cast out demons. We preached sermons. We did many mighty works in your name. And I'm going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Not I knew you then lost you or I knew you then you walked away, but I never knew you. We were never in a relationship. So there's tension for the believer. And I want to encourage you tonight that if you feel pain, if you feel doubt, if you feel the stress of life as a Christian, that's a good sign. It's a sign of life. Because the dead don't care. The dead don't doubt. The dead don't hurt the way the believer hurts. And I think that believers struggle uniquely with doubt Believers, unbelievers, those who reject the gospel, struggle uniquely with false security. I don't need God. I got myself. It's the rise of the modern self. I'm autonomous. I get to choose what's right for me. Those people don't struggle with doubt the way the believer struggles with doubt. So as believers, we've all in here at one time or another struggle with doubt over our salvation or over God's provision or why would God do this or why would God do that? And, and so the, the, the text that we're going to work through tonight is going to culminate with a warning where God, God's going to warn us through his word as believers. And as believers, we don't get a lot of warnings in Scripture. If you look at the volume of Scripture, how many specific verses give warnings, it's not a high percentage, 
but the gravity of those warnings is, is something that we have to pay attention to. In fact, the text will even say we must pay much closer attention to these things so that we don't drift. So I want to start by reading, um, we're, we're going to read chapter 1, verse 4, through chapter 2, verse 4. We're really going to key in on chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And it's difficult. I preached this text on Friday night at a college conference, and I preached it differently than I'm going to preach it tonight, um, which that's a possibility. That's, that doesn't mean I'm not going to be faithful to the text tonight. It's just different context and, and, and the focus of the weekend. Um, so you can pray for that. You can also pray, I've got a really bad cough, so let's pray that, uh, whisper a prayer um, that we get through this. I don't have a coughing spell. I appreciate that. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me, to, to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he makes his angels uh, uh, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved wickedness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. <clears throat> we learned last night, uh, last week that Jesus is the final uh, prophet through whom the Lord has spoken. And we learned in the introduction to Hebrews that Jesus is the great high priest. And we know that Jesus is the king of kings. And when we get into the, the start in verse four of chapter one, there are all of these quotations from the Psalms that are referencing angels. Now, I don't know if for, for a lot of us, angels are very, angels for me are very mysterious. I'm very intrigued by angels. And I think angels are interesting because they sort of exist culturally, um, but I don't know how accurate that often is. And when we study the scripture, we see that angels have several um, responsibilities that God gives them. But first we see that their origin is an origin of creation. They're created beings. So the angels are different than Jesus. Jesus is not an angel. Likewise, when you and I die, we will not go become angels. We won't go become angels. That's not what we're, we will become. We will become resurrected, but we will not become angels. And so there, there is a distinction between the angels and the Son of God, Jesus, and there's a distinction between the angels and you and I. In fact, Peter, at the end of 1 Peter 1, he says, the angels are intrigued, they're mystified by the salvation God provides for us. 
they look into the salvation. They long to understand and look into the salvation that God provides for his people. So in scripture, the angels do uh, several things. They are messengers sent by God. Uh, they worship. Uh, and, and there are different, there, there are a few places in scripture where unique types of angels are even talked about. Um, there are angels that have specific tasks given by God. They, they, they seem to, to exist and dwell in the, in, the, in the realm of the spiritual. And angels are messengers sent from God. They are warriors. In fact, there are multiple places in Scripture where Jesus or Yahweh is called the Lord of hosts. And another word for that would be the Lord of armies. It's the spiritual or the heavenly armies. And in the book of Revelation, there's a scene where Michael the archangel casts the dragon down in a battle and there's a scene in i think the book of daniel um, where there's a, a a battle that goes on between michael the archangel and a demon called the prince of persia that a lot of people think that demon is satan himself but at any rate he's a fallen angel or a demon it's this 21 day battle they fight for 21 days and so angels, angels are very, very interesting to study, but there's not a lot. If you, like if you take Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, study the chapter on angels, it's riveting, it's fascinating, but there's just not a lot to do a long deep dive study of. But there were, in the Jewish world, there were some misconceptions about angels. And the one thing that we know that we can take away from these first verses is that as we talk about Jesus being better, so the, the title of this sermon series as we're going through Hebrews is Jesus, uh, is, is, uh, Hebrews, Jesus is better. So Christ is better than the angels, but he's also unique and different than the angels. I jotted four things down and we could probably continue with this list, but he's greater in majesty. And we see that in those verses where there's, there's, there's a picture of the majesty of Jesus laid out in the Psalms over and over and over. He's greater in mission. He's greater in message, and he's greater in authority. He's greater in authority. In fact, the angels would show up sometimes, and when a person would see the angel, the angel would say, don't worship me, don't bow down before me. Um, and they would have that person uh, not worship them, make sure they don't worship them. But Jesus commands worship. He commands worship, and so the angels are different. But one of the things that is very interesting that I did not know until I studied this text was that there are multiple passages of scripture that make reference to the word that the angels gave to the people of old the word that the, the angels gave to the people of old the message declared by angels so let's jump into chapter 2 and verse 2 he says for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable now what is that message what is he referencing well listen to what moses said in deuteronomy 33 verse 2 he said the lord yahweh came from sinai and and dawned from seir upon us he shone forth from mount paran he came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand so moses said that when the lord gave him the covenant law at Sinai, it was given through angels. So angels delivered the law of God into the hands of Moses. Psalm 68, 17, the chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. Yahweh as among them at, is among them as at Sinai in holiness. And then even in the New Testament in Galatians, Paul says, 
Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. So Paul would even say that the angels were the givers of the message of the law. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling us that the the message of the angels is reliable. The law of God is reliable. The covenant that God made with his people is reliable. But the covenant was also consequential. If you study through the, if, if you did a, just a cursory reading of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you would find that there were specific punishments attached to specific laws. And so the, the message the angels gave was a, a message that had consequence with it if it wasn't heeded, if it wasn't obeyed. And so he says that message was reliable, but there's a message that's greater. Okay, so we want to be, we want to be precise with how we unpack this because there is a, there's a prevalent and prominent teaching even today that says the Old Testament is to be abolished or ignored or nullified. But Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. Remember that, where he said that? I came to fulfill the law. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And so what we're, when we talk about... Um, when we talk about the message of Jesus being greater than the message of the angels, we're talking about a, a, a succession of God's revelation through history where the angels gave a revelation of God to humanity that accompanied with it promises of God to his people and then called people into obedience and worship. But that Jesus came and brought a fuller or greater revelation of who God is. And in his revelation, he fulfilled to perfection that law, that, that message that the angels brought. Uh, the message of the angels was ratified in the blood of animals. The message of Jesus is ratified in the blood of Jesus. So Jesus's message is a greater message. So when he says um, that it's important that we pay attention to the message of Jesus, namely the gospel, he's not saying because it's, it's, that message is real and now it has somehow falsified the old message. He's saying it is a fuller revelation. And if it was critical for, for God's people to worship in accordance with God's requirements under the law, how much more important now should we pay attention to what Jesus says because he has fulfilled that law. He laid down his life in fulfillment of that law as a substitutionary atonement. So he says to pay closer attention, what's he talking about? And, and let's, let's, let's uh, look at this word therefore at the beginning of verse two. Therefore, anytime we see the word therefore, we know that he's saying consequentially based on what we've just talked about, heard, learned, or understood. And even in verse 14, in reference to um, the angels, he says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So he says the angels were sent out by God with a mission. Part of that mission was to serve the people that God was providing salvation for, to serve the people that God was providing salvation for. And so he says, based on what we've learned about the angels and the comparison of Jesus to the angels, that Jesus is greater than the angels. If we're going to summarize all of chapter 1, verse 4, to chapter 1, verse 14, the summary would be this. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the angels. 
This was, for, for us, this is a little different than it would have been for the original hearers, although most theologians think these hearers would have been, a lot of them, second-generation Christians. But the, 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 the place of angels in ancient Jewish worship was different than the way we view angels. And when I was growing up, don't raise your hand. Let me just answer this in your head. You think you ever met an angel? Remember that, you know, because the writer of Hebrews is going to say, some of you have entertained angels unaware. When I was growing up, my mom thought everybody was an angel unaware. <laughs> be nice to them people you don't know. That might be an angel. You be, I remember, I can remember, uh, I remember when I was about uh, six years old, my mom, and, and you older folks will remember this, but there used to be a real thing called a hobo. You know, and, that, and, and these were guys that would jump on trains and ride around the country and they weren't, uh, they, they weren't like just homeless people. They had kind of a wandering and adventurous spirit. And that's a big piece of Americana. We don't have that now. It's, it's, it's a different world we live in. And even, even when I think about it, I used to pick, pick up hitchhikers all the time. And I won't do that now. It's just kind of a different world we live in. But, um, but I remember uh, my mom explaining to me what a hobo was one night when this guy came to our house and he asked for food. And my mom gave him a mason jar full of pinto beans. We ate pintos about three nights a week. That's welcome to, you know, my childhood. That's why I'm not a big pinto fan now, I think, maybe. But we ate grits every morning and pintos three nights a week. And I remember uh, she, th my mom and dad let this guy lay on our carport, uh, put his bed roll out, and he slept outside on our carport. Just a wander. He, we lived on a main road. He's just wandering. He's just drifting through. And, and I remember that night saying, telling my mom, he was a pretty rough-looking character. I remember telling my mom, I'm a little bit freaked out about that guy. She said, honey, we don't know he might be an angel. And I thought, he don't look like no angel. I've seen pictures. I've seen pictures of angels, like drawings and stuff, you know. And that cat don't look like no angel I've ever seen. I was, I was a little bit concerned. Um, but I remember one time uh, when I, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little bit, uh, what's the word? Um, a little bit um, spectacular here. And we don't, we, we try to stay in some pretty tight lanes at Red Oak, Okay. But I'm going to tell you a story. When I was uh, little and I had just gotten married, and we were attending, we were going to church that John Rouleau served at for a few years. He wasn't serving there at the time. Remember, I remember there was a, a church split. Y'all know what that is? People can't get along, and so half of them leave or whatever. They leave, they could do, do another church, whatever. It was just a bad, bad time at the church. And I remember that there was a physical threat against the pastor. And a man showed up that night that had physically threatened the pastor. Um, again, which is pre-internet, pre-social media, things were different. You young people, things, the world is so different now than it was 30 years ago. And I remember the pastor standing up there addressing the congregation. It was like a church business meeting. We don't have those, and you're welcome. Okay, so, um, so I remember uh, the, the pastor was speaking, and there was some tension in there and I remember later the pastor's daughter saying that and she gave a testimony to this in a small group meeting we were in she said I was so afraid I was so 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 afraid that my dad was going to be assaulted attacked or killed and she was a grown woman she was like in her late 20s and had a couple kids her and her husband she said I was so worried about my dad and she said I'm sitting in the church and all of a sudden I saw the largest strongest looking man I've ever seen in my life just standing beside my dad like this and I got chills, goosebumps went straight up the back of my spine. And they should be going up your spine right now because it's the first time you've ever heard this story. And I remember having this 
and I was a fairly young Christian. I remember having this conversation, and I don't know what that was. Maybe it was, I don't know. I'm not going to try to give, but I know she was a solid believer. The pastor was a solid believer, and it wasn't a super highly charismatic, um, it wasn't a very charismatic church at all. In fact, it was kind of a dry, you know, more of a drier congregation and, and worship style. I don't know that I've encountered angels, but the scripture seems to speak to the idea that angels play an interactive role both in the spiritual realm and also in, in, in our realm. But here's what I know. I do not rely on angels. I rely on Jesus. We rely on Jesus to provide for us, to guide us, to lead us. If he chooses to use messengers or guardians at times, I think that one of the things that people will teach is that we all have a guardian angel. I don't know. The scripture doesn't seem to be really clear on that. And we don't ever want to there, there doesn't need to be conjecture. If the Bible's silent on something, we don't want to try to give it volume. But we know that angels are real. And we know that God uses them. And that they're even ministering servants that play a role in the lives of the believers. But here's what every angel that's faithful to the throne of Jesus would say to you and I tonight. Worship King Jesus. He is the lamb who was slain. He is the one who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one whose body and blood we took part symbolically in tonight in the worship through the Lord's Supper. And so there's a distinction. And so he says, pay closer attention to the message of Jesus than you would even to the message of the angels. And, he's, and, he, and when he says we have to pay closer attention to what we've heard, the idea is this is a really, this is a, a, an important, there's an important distinction here. I, I told those college kids Friday night, Rob, the Holy Spirit through Rob blew my mind last Sunday, last Sunday night. I wanted to come out of my seat. When he told that thing about when Jesus speaks, the idea is that his voice is still reverberating, holding creation in place. Y'all, I, I got about got Baptocostal in my seat. Like I got so excited thinking, what well, I've never heard that or seen that, like that the volume, the depth and, and the eternal nature of the spoken word of Jesus is sustaining creation. Because I've wrestled with the idea in the first three verses, was like he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And I'm like, is Jesus like, like ever so often going, stay, stay, you know what I mean? Like, like I, I remember having, a, I had, a, I had a, a cattle dog one time that was the best Little and I had this cattle dog, and that dog would work cows, and she would sit and stay. But after about 15 minutes, we used to, we used to time her. How long will she stay when you tell her to stay? And sooner or later, she'd get bored, and you'd have to say, stay, stay. Like, is Jesus, I, I'm like, is Jesus upholding the universe? Is he having to, but it, it all li lined up for me. The creation that he spoke into existence is still in existence because he hasn't told it any different. He hasn't told it any different. Your salvation is still intact because he hasn't said any different. And he's the one that has the authority to save. That's why we believe that when Christ saves, he completes what he starts. He has the authority. So when he says, pay closer attention to what you've heard, now we're, again, what have we heard in the voice of Jesus is the message of the gospel particular to salvation particular to salvation it is by grace that we're saved through works i mean through faith and not through works and so many people want to earn their salvation through works and it's it's like this reminder that the gospel is a gospel of grace and faith and not of works but that something happens when a person receives the grace of jesus that triggers works 
but those works are driven by the outworking of the Holy Spirit in us, not by us earning what God might give us. So he says, pay close attention to what you've heard, lest we drift away from it. What do you got to do to drift? Nothing. Nothing. Do nothing and you will drift. Just do nothing. But know this, no one ever drifts toward holiness. No one ever drifts toward holiness. And he uses terminology here. In this part of the sermon, he uses terminology that is like, the, the clearest picture would be a boat missing the anchor point and drifting past the harbor where it would be anchored. And, and we, all have, we can all get that image of a boat that's adrift or afloat. What do you gotta do to float downstream? Nothing. What do you gotta do to cross that river? Swim aggressively. What do you gotta do to go upstream? Swim more aggressively. And so he says, be careful, pay close attention so that you don't drift. Well, what are we to pay closer attention to? The action is to pay close attention to what we have heard. What is he referring to? The answer, the message of salvation given to us by Jesus. Prophesied by those who came before Jesus. It's the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is the greater message. The message of Jesus is the greater teaching. The teaching of Moses was the teaching of God's law given literally by angels, but the message of Jesus is greater. It's fuller. It, it brings to fulfillment and completion what God intended. In verse, verses 2 and 3, when he speaks of messengers that would be sent from God in the Old Testament, they were faithful and true to the word of God. The message was reliable. So he says this message was reliable. We know that a reliable prophet or reliable angel would only speak, thus saith the Lord. Remember that in the King James Version? Thus saith the Lord. Here's what God says, nothing more. They weren't to add to that message. The message was reliable. And if it was a reliable message, it was to be heeded and even obeyed. The law of God was sent to guide man and included warnings and even consequences for lawbreaking. There were consequences for ignoring or disobeying the commandment that was given by God through the angels. The message the angels delivered was the covenant of law that God made with Moses. That covenant being ratified in the blood of animals. The idea is not that the message of the angels has been nullified or invalidated. It hasn't gone away. It's been fulfilled and now we have a greater revelation, a fuller revelation. God's revelation has moved from lesser to greater. And it is for the greater revelation that you and I will be held accountable and responsible. People will often ask this question, man, it must've been tough in the Old Testament because you had this limited revelation of what the gospel would be. But in one sense, it's harder for you and I because we have the full revelation that we're held accountable for. We're held accountable for the full message of the gospel and what we do with that. Listen to me, look at me. If you're here tonight and you're human and you have a pulse, the most important decision you will ever make in your life is what do you do with the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do you do with that? And not only what do you do with it in coming to saving grace and saving faith, but what do you do with it in terms of how you pay attention to it the rest of your life? 
Because the gospel, we, in, in the Bible Belt, and especially growing up in southern Appalachia, for me growing up in western North Carolina with a granddaddy that was a preacher and a director of missions for Jackson County for a while, Haywood County for a while. I think I might have been in Macon County for a while. He bounced, you know, Baptist preachers are bad to do that. He's a tick, 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 they bounce around. But he's a godly dude, and he preached hard. And, and I grew up in this sort of culture where the idea is, well, I got saved. I checked that off the list. But he says, pay closer attention to what you've heard, because if you don't, the implication is you'll drift. You'll drift. You'll drift away. It's a warning. The uniqueness of Jesus is central to the uniqueness of the gospel. So rejecting the gospel is to reject Jesus. The message of the gospel is declared by Jesus. It's not possible to accept Jesus as anything other than the Son of God. The Messiah sent by God. He claimed to be God. He commanded his followers to worship him as God. He performed many supernatural miracles that cannot be explained within the natural order. He knew the thoughts of people without them telling him those thoughts. He predicted his own death and resurrection. He fulfilled those predictions. He rebuked Satan to his face and called himself Satan's Lord and God. Like he, we've been given instruction. There are passages of scripture like, that in the name of Jesus, we would resist the devil. Jesus just resisted him as his Lord and God. You will not tempt the Lord your God. See, Satan's not like the counterpart to Jesus. Jesus is not, it's not like yin and yang. It's not like Jesus is good and Satan is evil and there's this cosmic battle. Satan is under the authority of Jesus. Jesus is his Lord and God. calls people to repent and believe in him as Lord and Savior. And in the last verse, in verse 4, he mentions uh, signs and wonders and miracles, this, this trifecta, while God also bore witness by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Again, in that early church movement in the book of Acts, there were many signs and wonders that accompanied and gave credence and authority to the message of the apostles and the disciples. George Guthrie says this, the language here is legal. It's, a, it, it's as if God has entered into the courtroom of history to give witness and to confirm the message of Jesus. And this three-word expression was so common in the early church that it expressed confirmation of who God is and what he's done for us because of what God has done through Jesus. We have the word of God to hold fast to and live our lives by. We hold fast to the word of God. So in conclusion, I want to give you a, a thought on why God would warn us because I think that there's a misconception um, that we have. A lot of people have a misconception that God somehow uh, gets giggles out of punishing people. That God, there's a misunderstanding, I think, of, of, of a God who will judge. Um, and God will judge, and God does judge, and God is the judge. But again, I think... Uh, this guy uh, Guthrie this commentator is really helpful here he says the foundation of God's punishment and judgment resides in his holy character and in his divine love for the scriptures depict sin as a power that moves people away from the holiness of God and warps their existence as God's creation in other words God warns us oftentimes and with those warnings come promised consequences especially for the believer hey he's gonna he's gonna explain to us a few chapters from now that if you're my son you're my daughter punishment and discipline is an act of love it's a good thing it's an affirming thing 
but that he does it because he loves us because sin moves us away from what God's great intention for us is. And listen how he words that, Guthrie words that. It warps our existence. Do you know someone you love or maybe your testimony, there's a time where your very existence was warped because of sin. And so God warns and brings consequence and punishment because of his love. God warns us because he loves us. He warns us because he's passionate about his gospel and his glory. God helps us in heeding the warnings, though. He doesn't leave us on our own. Uh, uh, I'll close with a story. There's a group of us here that have daughters about the same age, and there was a birth. They were little girls. These girls, I don't even know if they would remember this now. They had a, birth, they had a sleepover at my house. I'm sure I probably asked for prayer on that Sunday before that sleepover, you know, a bunch of seven, eight-year-old girls at the house. It was a sleepover, it was a birthday party, a bunch of girls. And I was in, it was a Sunday morning, I was in my study, which is in a little shed out in front of my house, and I was studying, and I remember hearing a car come ripping down the road. I mean, it was so loud. And, but then it stopped in front of the property there. And, uh, and, I, and the girls were all down playing in the little pond down there. And when I say pond, it's like not much bigger than a stage. Um, sometimes we call it Lake Holloway, but it's, it's like a mud hole, you know, and it's a little wide spot in the creek that we dammed up. And they're down there playing. And then I hear a man's voice. And what this guy's doing is he's trying to coax the girls over to his car where he has a puppy. Now, this is literally like... Like, we make jokes about this, you know, like, don't take candy from the guy in the white van or don't go pet the puppy. And the guy's got a puppy and he's trying to get the girls to come over. And I realize what's going on. And I just take off running down the hill and he scratches off, drives off and leaves. But I remember the girls were, they, they were so young that all of them, their parents had taught them, don't approach a stranger in that situation. But then there was also the draw, the pull. He was persuasive. He was speaking kind words. He had a puppy. <laughs> They're eight-year-old girls, you know, like smart dude. And so he's pulling them. But they were resisting, but they were starting to yield. And then dad showed up. Then they didn't have to yield anymore. And I feel like it's a good picture of Christ has given us warnings and they're going to be, don't freak out because there are going to be times where the temptation is pulling you. But the writer of Hebrews will tell us in chapter four that, that Christ will help us in our time of need. The warnings are there to keep us faithful to the gospel, hearing the message of the gospel, paying attention to what Jesus has said. And we do so knowing that Jesus is ultimately the one that not only provided salvation, sanctified and ratified the, the covenant in his own blood, but will carry us through to the end on this journey called sanctification and will one day glorify us. Be mindful of the wonderful promises of salvation found in the gospel of Jesus and be motivated to live the godly life that you're called to. This motivation will keep us anchored to truth, not drifting from it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that tonight in this time that we've had in your word, that we would be reminded of the gravity of your gospel, that we would strive for the prize and the reward that is a crown of righteousness, and that we would live in the tension where we wouldn't take salvation so lightly that we think we could do whatever we want, live however we want, and that one day uh, we'll just get to go to heaven, but that there's tension
that there's fruit to be born, there's faithfulness to be pursued, there's, there's something to take hold of, there's a word to be heeded, there's a gospel that saves that then we are to be constantly reminded of that we might journey faithfully on the course that you've charted for us. I pray that we as a church would heed the warning lest we go down the path that others have gone. Pray for those that are part of this community of faith, this body of believers who have gone out from us and who are currently even now in that drift, in that turning away. And pray that you would draw them back to yourself and whatever means that you and your sovereignty and providence would see fit. I pray that you would keep us faithful, our eyes on Jesus, our hand to the plow, anchored deeply from within our soul, fastened to the word of God and to the gospel, and that you'd be glorified through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.